Welcome to the Lineup Podcast. I'm Eric Olson, and with me, as always, is... Dr. Clarissa Cole. Clarissa is a forensic psychologist with over a decade of experience working with the deranged, demented, dangerous, and mightily confused. In this episode of the podcast, we are sniffing around one of the most notorious true crime cases in U.S. history, Ed Gein. Tell us about Ed, Clarissa. Well, what would you say if I told you that Ed Gein, the man who inspired the characters of Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, Norman Bates in Psycho, and Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, wasn't a serial killer at all? Well, chances are you'd say I was crazy in just defending a fellow Wisconsinite, but before we get to my reasons, you need to know the whole story. You want to start us out, Eric? Sure. Ed Gein was born in 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's a city that borders the Mississippi River on Wisconsin's western border. At the turn of the last century, it was one of the largest cities in the state, boasting three universities, several breweries, naturally, and a booming logging industry. If the Gein family had stayed in this metropolis, things might have worked out differently for Ed. But in 1914, alas, the Gein clan picked up and moved to a town named Plainfield, a tiny smudge on the map with little more than 500 people. Smack dab in the center of Wisconsin, it's a place dense with pine trees, lakes, and snow. Only during the summer is there an influx of people looking to camp or hike, unless you count the hunters that travel through during deer season. And we probably should count them, as you will see. Gein's parents, George and Augusta, were a curious pair. George, a raging alcoholic, and Augusta, a staunchly religious ruler of the house. Opposites attract, apparently. By 1940, Father George had died, and Ed Gein's only brother, Henry, had succumbed to asphyxiation in a brush fire. That left Ed and his mother, Augusta, alone in a remote country farmhouse. And though Augusta was a cold, domineering, and fanatically religious figure, Ed adored her. I guess he didn't know any better. Ever since he'd been a child, Augusta had warned him against forming real relationships and steered him away from consorting with women and their bloomers and whatnot. (laughs) Always dangerous. Very dangerous. They will beguile you, my friends. In essence, Ed was programmed to rely solely on Augusta for his every emotional need. She taught him that she was the only person he could trust or love. Why do you think he did that, Clarissa? She did that. You know, there's a lot of theories. I think that Augusta did suffer from some form of mental illness. Uh, some some people say she was schizophrenic. She was certainly paranoid and overly religious. So the thought of her youngest son sort of going out into the world probably terrified her. So she made him afraid of everything so he wouldn't leave. It's ironic, and, and I don't want to quote Sting here, but the harder you grasp, it seems the more difficulty you will have hanging on to people. I agree. And, and I think that that's ultimately partly why George, Augustus' husband, drank so much. And uh, I think Henry, the older son, was also looking to sort of escape that suffocating relationship. And and interestingly, uh, Henry's death was a little bit um, suspicious. How so? Well, he, they said he died in a brush fryer. That's what the coroner said at the time. But there was nothing on his body to indicate any burns. And there wasn't a whole lot of smoke inhalation going on inside the lungs either. They they did do an autopsy, and yet they still considered it uh, a brush fire that killed him. What did they find? 
well, they said it was asphyxiation, but there was very little evidence of that. So I, I don't know. I, I, it's a suspicious death at the least. You're not thinking about mom, are you? I am thinking about mom. Yeah. Oh, my. Well, we'll put that aside for a bit. When Augusta passed away due to a series of strokes in 1945, young Ed Gein was finally and totally alone in the world. I guess he wasn't all that young. He was, what, 39? Yeah, yeah. But he seemed young. Yes. He was young at heart, shall we say. Yes, perpetually, yeah. Overcome with grief, Gein simply boarded up Augusta's rooms, keeping them as a shrine, exactly as she'd left them. He also became obsessed with the idea of death and dying, reading accounts of headhunting, exhumation of corpses, and dissection. It wasn't long before Gein began to obsess about what bodies of women like his mother would look like, feel like, in his home. Post-mortem, of course. When Gein came across the obituary section of his local newspaper, he was struck with an idea to quell his curiosity. He began digging up the graves with his mentally challenged friend, Gus. Shockingly, even in the small town, mid-century, this went unnoticed for nearly a decade. So Ed Gein was essentially a grave robber. What were you telling me about the other day in relation to grave robbers? Well, grave robbing, as I'm sure you know, being a, a medical doctor... Uh, or are you a medical doctor? I am not a medical doctor. I, I did study some of that, but I'm a psychologist, so I, I want to know what's going on here. You're a doctor of psychology. I am. Okay, very important. I'm glad we made that distinction. All right, grave robbing for centuries was literally the backbone and, let's face it, a dirty secret of the entire medical education industry until cadavers became more readily available for, for educational purposes in the 20th century. So this was an ongoing, this was literally a profession. Grave robbers would hook up with medical schools and provide them under the table, as it were, and they were well paid for a steady supply of cadavers. Uh, I, I mean, I, I know that that happened. It just, I can't. Did, did people not notice that these graves had been dug up? Did they put them back the way they found them? This is so confusing to me. Well, I think a a talented, professional, long-term, a career, a career grave robber would learn to cover his or her, but I'm I'm guessing mostly his, tracks. So yes, I would think they would fill it back up. And uh, I, I think one of the things that they did, as it would appear Ed did at the beginning at least, was you look for the fresh graves because they're not going to notice if those were dug up. Uh, good point. Good point. They, they already look that way. So, and it would be easier, I would assume. They look fresh. Speaking of which, speaking of grave robbing, just right here in my area, in Northeast Ohio, there's an interesting story. There was a small burgeoning medical school in the middle of the 19th century, 1800s, right here locally, and it was shut down by an angry mob of villagers with pitchforks when rumors <laughs> spread that the school was dipping into local cemeteries for supplies. So there's a bit of an answer to your question. Yes, sometimes people did notice. Wow. Wow. Was there proof of this? Was that happening? Oh, yes. It was happening. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe they heard a rumor. I, oh, that's terrible. 
to, further background is the widow of a, of a man who had just died within the last day or two uh, had a dream and, and the husband came to her in the dream and said, they're chopping me apart. Please stop it. Save me, save me, save me. So, of course, she went to his grave. She saw that it had been tampered with, even though it was fresh, she was able to tell. And uh, the word went out that something had happened. That, and, of course, they then dug it up. He was missing. They, someone said, aha, uh -huh, I wonder if we should check the nearby medical school. They did. They found the husband, and he was already being worked on by the students. So he literally was being um, dismembered, and the dream turned out to be absolutely true. Wow. That, that's incredible and very shocking and terrible. I, I can't even imagine how devastated that woman must have been. Shocking. And yeah. the doctors and doctors-to-be were sent scurrying for cover, running across the countryside, <laughs> chased by a wild mob, an angry mob. Wow. Well, you know, that could have happened to Gein and his accomplice, Gus, but despite a decade of doing this, they never got caught. It's amazing. Tell us how that happened. What happened well, next? It, well, it's, it seems that Gus, his friend, um, who had some, had some issues, ended up getting put in an institution. So now Gein was completely alone because he didn't have his grave-robbing buddy anymore. Um, so he was just a grave robber until 1954 when his crime partner was locked away. And it was only then that Ed Gein became a murderer. So in that year, Mary Hogan, the owner of the one bar in town in Plainfield, went missing. Deputies from the sheriff's office found a shotgun shell in the bar and a trail of blood leading out to the parking lot, but nothing more. So her case went completely unsolved for several years. Um, there, there wasn't anything to go on other than the shotgun shell. And during deer season in Wisconsin, you find shotgun shells. So this wasn't and this was long before the CSI of today. So in 1957, when Bernice Warden went missing from the local hardware store she ran, it was called Warden's uh, Hardware Store, on the counter was a receipt for antifreeze with the name Ed Gein on it. So he had to have been the last person that saw Bernice Warden alive is what people were thinking. So the, the local sheriff's deputies went out to Gein's rural home to ask him a few questions. They did not expect much, as everybody thought that Ed Gein was simple or harmless. Um, would you like to tell everybody what they found when they got there, Eric? Oh, my. <laughs> all right. Engage all your senses, my friends. It was a literal house of horrors. Even upon approaching from the outside, the men could smell the stench of decomposition and rotting trash. In a shed adjoining the house, they found the headless body of poor Bernice Warden, strung up by the heels to the roof beams. She'd been gutted and butchered just like a hunter would dress a deer. Inside Gein's home, the officers found her head in the kitchen, as though it were being prepped to hang on the wall as a trophy. Because... Why not? And yeah. if that wasn't enough, they found bowls made from the tops of human skulls, tanned lampshades and waste paper baskets fashioned from human skin, naturally, a belt made of nipples. Oof. I think they have those at Hot Topic. <laughs> oh, 
A shoebox full of genitalia and a row of nine shrunken heads on the wall, including the first victim, Mary Hogan. Oh my, imagine these poor rural lawmen. Yeah, who, who were going to question somebody that everybody thought was harmless. Even though I'm sure they were hunters themselves, they had to be taken aback. Might oh, at, definitely. At this scene of, of horror. Of course, Gein was immediately taken into custody and questioned. He readily admitted to killing Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden, but asserted that he hadn't murdered the others. Estimates range from 10 to 15 bodies in the house, in and about the house, based on the parts found. But he took them from their resting places in the local cemetery. He was then found incompetent to stand trial and put in a mental institution, eventually declared not guilty by reason of insanity, and oh my, I'm not surprised. Gein lived out the rest of his life in the Mendota Mental Health Institute, where he was Ironically enough, a model patient. He died in 1984 from a heart attack and was put to rest next to his beloved mother in the same cemetery he'd grave robbed years before. He was 85 years old, is that right? Yes, yes, he was. He, he lived a good, long life. I don't know about good, but it was good, long. Good, yeah, yeah, it was long, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, so now that we've gone over the full story, it brings me back to my original point that Ed Gein was not a serial killer. How is this possible, I say to you, Dr. Clarissa <laughs> Cole? Well, this is partly due to the official FBI definition. So the FBI are the ones that coined the term serial killer in the first place. And their official definition is somebody that has three or more victims. So despite the number of body parts found in Gein's home, there was no evidence, physical or otherwise, linking him to any other murders or disappearances. Additionally, Gein didn't appear to have much of a level of criminal sophistication. I mean, he killed two really high-profile victims who were sure to be missed and left evidence at both scenes. So this makes it very unlikely in my mind that he was able to carry out other murders more covertly. So the idea that Gein was a serial killer just doesn't pan out for me. I mean, there are other myths, too, right? They are, that Ed was a cannibal. But before we get to that, I'm, I'm interested to dig a little more deeply into the meaning of serial killer. So in a sense, besides the numerical aspect where he only killed two, it would appear, and the technical definition says three or more, it seems to me also... And this is a more subjective, more of a connotation rather rather than a denotation. And that is, murder for him wasn't really the point. He no. just, he just needed more supplies. It, it it really is true. Murder was not something that he reveled in, that he wanted to do. It, it, there is no evidence that he kind of ramped up excitedly to this act of murder, or that he got any sort of gratification from the murder itself. In fact, both murders were thought to be extremely quick, um, much, and, and I hate to put it in terms of this, but much like how a hunter during deer season would do. There, there was no excitation about the murders itself that we're aware of. So he really was just needing some parts and supplies. 
I believe so. And and after losing his partner Gus, he either couldn't carry out the grave robbing anymore or he didn't feel that was sufficient for what his needs were. Bizarre. What a peculiar fellow. All right. The second myth is that Ed Gein was a cannibal. A rumor was spread that because Bernice Warden's heart had been found in the kitchen, aha, uh-huh, it was being prepared to be eaten. People speculated that it was in a pot on the stove. But the heart was actually found in a plastic bag, and her intestines, naturally, were found wrapped in newspaper. They were both on the floor, being readied for disposal. Those familiar with deer hunting will recognize the practice of wrapping the innards as waste, and her body had been prepped exactly like a deer, which was something Ed Gein had learned as a child. He did have human skull soup bowls, though. Well, you know, waste not, want not, as they say. <laughs> these these thrifty Midwesterners, upper Midwesterners. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, he had a belt. He had soup bowls. He, he, yeah, he was being uh, very, very cautious. So I know you said... That, uh, you know, clearly he was mentally ill, perhaps even uh, someone who hallucinated. What do you, just wild speculation, what was running through his mind as he was both, A, fashioning these various (laughs) outerwear and um, devices for um, dining and furniture and whatnot out of literally human parts? What do you... What just what's going on in his mind? How is he using those things? Do you think he's living literally in a fantasy world, barely connected to reality, or did he know what was going on? I mean, in other words, how sinister was all this within his own mind? I don't think it was very sinister at all. That's the part that's also very intriguing to me about Ed Gein's case. I mean, there was no... I mean, obviously, I think he knew the grave robbing was wrong. They must have covered that up a bit. But when he took both of his victims and he was preparing them, let's put it that way, there was no effort to hide anything in his house or in the the barn or the shed. There was really no effort to cover up anything that he was doing. It was all very much out in the open. Um, And a a quote-unquote typical serial killer would make efforts to cover that because they're very much aware that what they're doing is sinister and and evil. And Ed Gein didn't really seem to have that about him. I think that he was just kind of living in that fantasy world, but doing it somewhat openly. Very strange. All right. Well, the third myth that caught on like wildfire after the movie The Silence of the Lambs was released in the early 90s was that Ed Gein was transsexual. There's a scene where Buffalo Bill, the killer in The Silence of the Lambs, the killer (laughs) who is not Hannibal Lecter, Buffalo Bill dresses (laughs) as a woman and dons a suit of human skin. He seems to be identifying as a woman and trying to literally create the flesh of a woman over his own male body. He even wears a wig and makeup. But this is not what Ed Gein was doing. Gein admitted that he attempted to find women who reminded him of his mother. Then he made a suit so that he could literally crawl into her skin. That, that was, yeah, Oh, sorry. Yes, that was, I was going to comment on that. That please. was, yes, that was a kind of, the, the fact that everybody sort of puts that on him, that he was somehow trying to 
to be a woman. And part of the reason that people say this uh, is that he at one point did say that, that he felt like he wanted to be a woman after he got uh, locked up for this. He had some sort of utterances about that. But there is really no no evidence. I mean, he he was he was not confused about his gender. Um, you know, Gein was diagnosed as schizophrenic, and his mother Augusta probably was schizophrenic. He, you know, he suffered delusions, hallucinations, obsessions, paranoia, and terrible, terrible depression. So, since he had no real friends or social network, and his mother's death pushed him over that brink, he just couldn't come back from it. So he's isolated in this world, in this lonely, dilapidated Plainfield farmhouse. He was left to his own malignant and confused thoughts. So he's spiraling into this psychotic state, and he knew nothing of how to reach out for help because his only support had left him. So instead, he decided to do everything in his demented mind to bring that person back, which included uh, using skin and and covering himself with it to crawl into his mother's persona. Do you think crazy old Augusta might have somewhere in the back of her crazy mind been a little bit proud of him if she had known the effect that she had had on him or proud of herself and and some little teeny portion of her approved that she had isolated him so completely and so well? Oh, I don't doubt it. I, I think the only reason Ed Gein survived Augusta is because he adored her and worshipped her as much as he did. I, I think that that is why his brother Henry is is no longer around and his father drinking himself to death, I, yeah, I think she would be happy that he didn't consort with women, that he didn't live a normal life. That's not what she wanted for him. Wow. So you think that not only was his personality, his persona, um, whatever aspects of his illness that were brought on by environment, you think that not only was that simply a byproduct of her personality and her issues and her problems, but that she literally intentionally did this to him? I I do think that, yeah. I, I suspect that there was some other stuff going on with Augusta aside from, from schizophrenia, maybe uh, like a borderline personality disorder organization, which is a, it's a whole other topic, but she seemed to also have something like borderline personality disorder, which is uh, somebody that would want their sons to adore only them, that that never approves of the son's girlfriend or wife uh, ever, is always trying to insert themselves in between uh, the son and his wife. Augusta seemed to have a lot of this going on as well. Wow, madness. All right, let's talk a little bit about some of the characters then and compare them. We, we just talked about Buffalo Bill. You mentioned at the beginning Leatherface. How, how would you compare what was derived from Ed Gein in the Leatherface character of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, I think that you are going to have to tell us more about that yourself because I, while I have watched Silence of the Lambs and I have watched Psycho, I am a little bit squeamish as far as Chainsaw Massacre goes. <laughs> I am too. Well, it really is one of the most horrifying movies ever made, even to this day. In fact, the, the kind of the graininess of it and the relatively low production value in that case, I, I, it makes it even worse, I think. Because it, it, you're not, you don't have that sharp patina of reality that in some ways can make you feel better. 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it really is a horrifying movie, and it's just relentless. I mean, basically, Leatherface character, he is certainly shares the simple-mindedness, though much, much worse than I'm sure Ed was. Ed was at least a nominally functioning member of society, at least periodically. Um, he was known in town. He interacted, mm-hmm. at least when he had to, with people in town. And uh, I believe you said he also... At some point, you told me that he uh, did odd jobs. Yeah, he, was he did handyman. handyman work. Yeah, he did. He, he did it successfully. No one ever complained. Well, Leatherface would not do that, my friend. <laughs> so the other difference is, enormous difference, Leatherface is this huge, hulking, frightening character. And as far as I can tell, Ed was a was not a large or foreboding or intimidating presence at all. No, no, not at all. Very unassuming. People were not afraid of him. You see that picture of him, and man, you almost feel sorry for him. He he does look a. I mean, for lack of a better word, he does look a bit simple and and kind of not not completely with the world. He certainly doesn't look foreboding or scary. Deer in the headlights is what I'm thinking. And yes, uh, I mean, you look in those eyes, and uh, there's something going on there, but but not much. Uh, the, the light is not on brightly, shall we say. It looks a little dim. So Leatherface was basically this almost subhuman, hulking, menacing character who lived simply to kill. And, and to kill in order to cannibalize. And that's what this family was, this terribly inbred, creepy family. It is nominally based on a true story, I think very, very tangentially, even more tangentially than some of the Ed Gein-inspired tales. So, yeah, Leatherface, the main issue here was, yes, they both did kill people, and Leatherface literally wore a mask of human skin. So that part, I guess, is somewhat similar. Other than that, they were pretty different characters. All right, what about Norman Bates from Psycho? I really like uh, that characterization, probably the best out of the three that we know are are inspired by Ed Gein, you know, because you look at what, you know, what you were saying about Leatherface, very malignant, sort of inbred, uh, crazy family. And then you look at uh, Buffalo Bill, also very maniacal, evil. uh, And with Norman Bates, he is perpetually sort of an adolescent in some ways. He he has not individuated from his mother. He is completely dependent and reliant upon her. And when she passes away, he doesn't know what to do with himself. And he resorts to taking out uh, violence and, and some of his quashed sexuality on his victims. And I think that has got to be, for me, the closest interpretation of Ed Gein out there is Norman Bates. I think you're probably right. Certainly psychologically, that would seem to be the case. Although Norman Bates was intelligent and he was more certainly aware of what was going on. But yes, I think as a composite, he probably is certainly the closest. There have been a a few that were specifically Ed Gein biographies. Have you seen those biopics? I have not. I have not. I'd be interested to to hear what you've watched, though. Well, I haven't seen them either, by golly. But the Steve... (laughs) The Steve Railsback one is considered quite well done and relatively close. Hughes a close path to the the real life tale. The other one um, actually stars yet another hulking figure, and and again that does really doesn't 
fit in with the real Ed Gein. So that one veers pretty far off base. But I think the Steve Railsback one is considered to be pretty close to the original tale and, and not a not a bad movie. So, wow, it's amazing. The next time you are watching a horror film with a maniacal and difficult-to-catch villain who is, quote-unquote, inspired by Ed Gein, you should look at the facts of his life and realize that what we're watching is more about the author's evil mind than it is about Ed's. Completely. And by the way, just as a side note before we finish up here, I don't feel like I have to watch the biopics as much because I actually have a very small connection of my own to the actual Ed Gein. Do tell! Well, um, as a kid, my parents always took me to the small uh, town of Plainfield because right next to Plainfield, there are tons of campgrounds in the summer. And that's, that's when all the people come up to, to go camping. So for many years, I went uh, up to Plainfield and we ate at this small little restaurant called Ron's, best strawberry pie ever, um, if they're still around, I don't know. And uh, one time we were traveling up there in the 80s, early 80s, and I was sitting in the back of my parents' you know, station wagon. And there was this procession of cars going by that my dad stopped for. And I thought, why are those cars not stopping? You know what I mean? You learn in school, you're supposed to stop for the stop sign. They're just going right through. W what's going on? And my dad said, well, that's a funeral. You know, that's a, that's a funeral, honey. And I was like, oh, that's so sad. You know, I wonder who died. And my dad turned around and said something to me that I thought was strange at the time. And he said, well, it's not always sad. That was a very, very bad man. And it turns out that was the funeral procession, very small, for Ed Gein. Bizarre. Yeah. You lived through a small piece of it. I did. I saw him on his way to the uh, graveyard. And gave him a salute. Yeah, I, well, I was very sad. I was a kid. I thought, man, that's just the saddest thing. But looking back, I'm like, boy, that's kind of morbid. Yes, that's, that's a tale. All right. The Lineup Podcast is a joint production of The Lineup. America's Most Haunted, and The Criminal Code. Visit the lineup at www.the-line-up.com. America's Most Haunted at americas-most-haunted.com. And The Criminal Code at thecriminalcode.com. Our theme music is composed and performed by Abso-Facto. Listen in at absofacto.com. Have a great one, everybody. 